Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Welcome back. This is day four and we just left Kfar Kana village and we're heading to the Central Market bus station in Nazareth downtown. And we are leaving the bus and we are taking a shortcut through an alley of few steps to reach the Casanova Road that connects us to the Annunciation Church. So now all the group is standing outside the Basilica of the Annunciation. This is a huge modern church. In 1955, Catholic Christians officials in the Holy Land decided to erect the great new basilica to honor the mysterious birth of Christ and to house the Grotto of Mary's house. And especially all the church is to honor Mary. And before beginning to build this huge project, a father, Catholic father, Belramin Baghetti excavated the whole area from 1955 till 1968. And the final design of the church was done by an architect called Antonio Barruzzi in 1951. He's also an Italian architect. And he was assisted by another professor called Giovanni Muzio, who prepared the flesh plans for the basilica which is designed to incorporate the grotto, Mary's house of the Annunciation, and to preserve the remains of the Christian churches built on sites in earlier periods. The architect general plan was two huge churches to connect each others, and one above the other. And there is one down, which is called the lower church, and the center feature of that church is the grotto marked all the way by huge dome and the project was approved in 1959 and the building contract was signed on September 30th 1960 with the largest Israeli construction company by the name Solel Boni. There are two facades of the church. There is the western facade called the Christological facade to honor Jesus Christ and there's another southern facade to honor Mary. But now we are standing at the western facade and we're going to learn about the Christological facade that speaks about Jesus. And look all the way at the very top. There is a bronze statue of Jesus uplifting his hands, giving a blessing. And next to the statue, there is an angel by the name Gabriel announcing the story to Mary. And below this stands four statues, one for Matthew, one for Mark, one for Luke, and one for John, each holding a symbol. There are symbols for the opening of each gospel. For example, Matthew's symbol is a man because his gospel begins with a genealogy. 
Mark's symbol is a lion because his gospel begins with Jesus in the wilderness. And the gospel of Mark is written the phrase, the wild animals did not harm him. Luke gospel, the symbol is a bull. So you see statue of the bull because his gospel begins in the temple with the chariah and the animals usually offered for sacrifice were bulls. Also, John's symbol is an eagle because his gospel begins flying theological high. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word is God. And underneath John's symbol, there is a Latin phrase that is carved on the wall. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And actually, it's taken from John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Western facade reminds us, according to Christianity, the word of God could be seen in everything. Jesus said and did, and it continues to live among people, which means God, the creator, wanted a relationship with his people. So he announced through an angel all the way from God the Father to the angel, to through the Gospels, through the Gospels, all the way to the Word. So, the Word became flesh and dwelt among the people. From high spirituality, from God the Father, all the way down through the people, through the Gospel, through Mary, all the way to the world. And below the verse we just read, uh, there is a Franciscan symbol is the custodial symbol of the Franciscan order, which is the cross that is crossing across the arms. And one to the left is of Jesus, and one of the right is St. Francis of Assisi. And we see in the middle of the hands what we call the stigmata, the wounds of Jesus. And on one of the arms of the statue, you're going to see a robe coming down. And this robe is belonging the hands to St. Francis of Assisi. And the other symbol of the cross of the hands, you won't see a robe. And this is dedicated for the wounds of Jesus. We are standing in a center of a courtyard enclosed by walls. And there is a gallery with icons and actually mostly not icons, precisely a lot of mosaics and ceramic tiles and drawing representing some of the most important Mary's devotions for different countries. And from all over the world, uh, gifts were given to this church and donations. And not only that, a mosaic or a ceramic of how people see Mary's in all the Catholic countries. And there are a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, like mosaics and uh, a lot of ceramic tiles and i want to pay your attention on the entrance there is one from nazareth and actually the people of nazareth were jealous why everyone is donating ceramic tiles and mosaics of mary and we are here and we don't have one so one artist from the tabar family a big christian family in nazareth had donated in 1997 another ceramic tile of 
Mary. And it's amazing how every, every ceramic tile or mosaic of Mary represents different countries. And this is how every country see Mary in their culture. And if you look on the center and below of the facade, you're going to find a bronze door describing the chronological life of Jesus in six sculptures on the main door. And to the left side, we see at the top the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Below it, we're going to see the Holy Family trip to Egypt. And below it, we'll see Jesus helping his dad at work. And and the bottom side to the right, we're going to see Jesus' baptism. On the top of it, we can see Jesus' ministry on the Sea of Galilee. And the top one, the sixth facade, we will see Jesus on the cross in Jerusalem. And this is a huge bronze door donated to the church. Now let me talk a little bit about the southern facade. And that side was built in honor of Mary. And actually all the church is built of honor of Mary because Mary, according to the Catholic tradition, guarantees the humanity of Jesus as opposed to the divinity of Christ. And there is also another bronze door. And on the top of the bronze door, there's a statue of Mary that was given as a gift from Germany. And the statue of Mary reflects two things. First, Mary's youth. And second, her willingness to be used by God. This is shown by the position of her hands, which are open and uplifted. The idea of her being a servant for God is reflected in Luke's Gospel. Behold the handmaid, the servant of God. On the top left is etched a hymn and written in Latin. It says the Solve Regina. This is a very well-known hymn by the Catholics. Important note, this church was dedicated in 1969, a time when many of the reforms from the Vatican II Council were moving from Latin to the common language used by the people in English. So that's important point to know. Outside the bronze door, at the lowest panel of the door, we see a reflection of the traditions about Mary that are not mentioned in the Gospel. And this is an early 2nd century tradition and that was preserved by the Catholic Church related to Mary. And the middle represents mainly gospel stories. Let me talk about the top panel. And it's called the Immaculata from the word Immaculate. The father and the mother of Mary, according to the tradition, Anna and Joachim, are her parents and Mary's spirit is believed to be pure or immaculately clean. It's important to note that the immaculate birth is referred to Mary's birth and not to the birth of Jesus. And we know according to tradition, Anna, the mother of Mary, was barren. She couldn't have children and Joachim, her father, was praying hard. And the tradition says he went all the way to Wadi Kult. It's a Wadi near valley nearby Jericho with the ancient road. And he went to a cave and started praying. And an angel appeared to him and told him that he has to go back to Mary, uh, to Anna, sorry, and 
that he will bear a child and he will name her Mary. And this is like a similar story of the birth of Jesus. And by the way, this is not a biblical source. This is a source outside the Bible. And then Miriam was born. So all of that we can see on the facade, then on the door. Okay, let's continue and go inside the church. Let me talk a little bit about the church architect. Everything you see is huge, all right? Uh, the walls of the building are made of dressed stones that is native to the area. And the roof is made of reinforced pure concrete. And because this church is to honor Mary, so the letters A, V, and M are in all the art and the architect of the church. A, V, M stands for the famous Latin, Latin hymn Ava Maria. And there's pictures and statues of Mary even inside the church, not only outside in the courtyard, but inside the church donated from different countries all over the world in modern style that is unique to each country. In 1969, the church costed $60 million to be built. This makes it the most expensive Catholic church in the Holy Land and the, one of the biggest modern churches of the Middle East. And the nice thing to tell you that this church is a Christian Catholic church, but a Jewish contractor was involved in that and most of the workers were Muslims that involved in building the church. Now we are in the lower part of the church. Remember I told you there's two parts, the lower part and the upper part. We are walking inside the lower level. That the heart of the lower level contains the grotto of the Annunciation. It's believed by many Christians to be the remains of the original childhood home of Mary. And the lower church follows the plan of a crusader basilica. And it's a huge area and the internal dimensions are 44 and a half meters in length and 27 meters in width. The apses built by the crusaders are separate. These were partially reconstructed and the overall height of the apses is around 7 meters and the central nerve have no support. These being all together inside the walls of the Crusader Church. Now we're going to continue walking all the way down and we're going to go through a few steps to reach the Byzantine period. And this is what we will see inside. In the 4th century, there was a great basilica was erected. And according to tradition, the church was built by someone called Joseph of Tiberias. We don't have enough information about him, but he was a Jew who converted to Christianity. He erected many churches in Galilee during the time of Emperor Constantine and also pushed for the spread of Christianity among his fellow Jews. And the Byzantine remains are conserved in an octagonal floor shape. And the apse belong like uh, to a small around 18 meters long church. It's not a huge church and was built over what 
is believed to be a synagogue there. And alongside the north nave was a monastery. And on the west was an atrium that ran as far as the present facade. The floor of the Byzantine church held a small square basin with seven steps, which scholars believe to have been a relic of the Jewish mikveh or ritual bath. It may also be a pre-Constantine baptistry. And beside, just beside this basin, this baptistry, there is a mosaic panel whose north-south orientation, orientation suggests that it's a Byzantine church. And the design on the floor is a victory crown with trailing ribbons surrounding a cross. These are clear Christian symbols. The floor dates to the 4th century and the mosaic is in line with a flight of steps leading down to a square other mosaic of the same period. And there is inscription there. And the inscription reads, Gift of Canon Deacon of Jerusalem. The small cave behind it is believed to have been dedicated in the 3rd century by the martyr of the same name. A larger cave must have been in use at the same time, and the steps leading out on the far side have not been dated at all. And there's some stairways and at the side, which leads all the way up from the Byzantine period, going back to the Crusader period church, and going all the way up to the upper level church. I hope you're not confused, but I'm trying to describe for you the architect of the church of different periods of history. Next, we're going to move to the Crusader time. The present basilica, the huge church that is dedicated in 1969, preserved the outline of a Crusader church that dates to the 12th century. And the main entrance facing the main road outside where we came from, the Casanova Street, give access to the Crusader Church in the 12th century. And on the left, the north wall of the Crusader Church is visible. And the northeast corner and its spiral staircase are completely Crusader and are significant portions and important that encamped in the architect of the church. By the way, there is also a mosaic in the area here in the church, and there is six capitals that were made for the Crusader Church by a French artist, but they had not been put in a place in the 12th century when the news of Salah al-Din victory at the horns of Hattin and the Crusaders lost the battle, so they never used it, and the church people hid them for safety, and they were found during the 20th century excavations in laying the foundation of the modern church. And they look perfectly complete and untouched. Now we are going to the second level, the upper level of the modern church. The upper level contains a number of images, also mosaics and ceramics of Mary, and each from a different country uh, that have really a significant Catholic population such as Brazil, such as South America, Peru, such as also from all over the world, like Japan, even from USA. But this upper church is huge. The dimensions are around 44 and a half meters by 27 meters. The total size is about 1,150 square meters. 
which is a huge space for a public worship. We're talking about like 850 like square miles. It's huge. And the roof of the nave is 12 meters high, while in the middle, the copula rises 40 meters above the floor. And the sanctuary itself is around 9 meters wide. This church can fit like minimum like 1,500 people inside the church. Every Sunday there is a Catholic Mass that takes place in the church, but mostly mm, it's empty. The churches nowadays are turning to museums and there is only few, few like Catholic Christians that come and attend the church. All over Nazareth there is around 3,000 Catholics but mostly the old generation is attending the church so we don't find the first or second even the third seatings only full with old women and some few christian catholic families so the church is turning more to a museum than it's a living church but groups come from all over the world and they like to celebrate ma masses in the church there's a lot of catholic groups you have to understand catholic tourism has been here for almost 800 years around so a lot of catholic groups come and like to have a mass at the house the traditional house of mary and joseph and it means a lot to them and actually all the size of the church is the area of the first century downtown where jesus lived this is the size of the first century nazareth and outside the church there is another church a basilica called saint joseph church and it was built in 1914 on the remains of an ancient structure they found a cistern there and a basement very well preserved and has square shapes and is cut in the rock and has a white mosaic floor carefully arranged to fit with a piece of a black basalt. And there is a tradition asserts that the church of St. Joseph in Nazareth is built over the workshop of Joseph, the husband of Mary. But there is no evidence that this workshop or this cave style, which is under the church, is 100% Joseph workshop. It's only a tradition, but, but this is the site of the Holy Family's home, the area, the cave, and uh, the vicinity, we can say. The Gospels use the Greek word tekton, meaning a builder, or like an artist, or a, a, like a constructor, to describe Joseph's work. He mostly likely worked with both stone and wood, but mostly stone, since stone was the common building materials in the area till today and probably also Joseph's work may have taken him away from his house and uh, there's not much employment in Nazareth in the first century so he will join uh, to build some Hellenized Roman cities like Tipuri which was rebuilt by Herod Antipas at the time of Joseph and his wife and his son Jesus arrived from Egypt all the way to live in Nazareth. By the way, uh, we, I spoke in details about uh, Joseph's work and his job as a tecton in earlier podcasts. Also in the basement, there are six rectangulars, 
uh, outlined in black with even steps leading down to a huge basin. This has been identified as a pre-Constantinian baptistry. And beside the basin, there is a flight of rough steps leads down to a narrow passage, which after like a 180-degree turn, curves open into a two-meter-high underground chamber. It was artificially enlarged, and the openings betrays a number of bell-shaped silos at a still lower level. So probably that was a place to store granary and store a lot of food. So I'm trying to describe for you the architect of the, the churches and what we see. And now after finishing the tour, we will go back to the bus with the group and we have to walk down the hill into the main streets and go to the parking lot. On our way, I always take my group to taste some sweets again. It's part of the culture. And what I do, I will walk faster than everyone and get inside the sweet shop and buy for everyone a delicious sweet called burma nazareth is very famous of sweets burma is a turkish delight style made with shredded duff rolled around shape with a grounded pistachios and sometimes the pistachios is out and also sometimes the pistachios are inside it just like most of other baklava varieties burma is like baked and have uh, like lemon flavored syrup uh, slice into like small pieces and it's a so delicious and we will not sit down with the group because there's not enough space for all the group inside the shop but we will snack on it walking all the way to the bus by the way it tastes like heavens and it's not so much sweet but it's perfect taste and that's uh, for the day, they enjoying tasting part of the culture and what the locals do when they are in Nazareth. When everyone is seated in the bus, I will share about uh, modern Nazareth. And I tell the group that Nazareth today has a population of around 85,000 people. And the majority of the residents are Arab citizens of Israel and about 25% of whom are Christians and 75% are Muslims. And the majority is a Muslim population today. And let me explain more. What do I mean by Arab citizens of Israel? And let's learn about some modern history in 1947. And in 1947, this town was, Nazareth was primarily Christians. And the town was not uh, a field battle during the 1947 Arab-Israeli war. Although some of its nearby villages joined the loosely organized peasants' resistance forces. But not Nazareth. There was not much resistance there or like any riots. And during uh, the operation, it's called Operation Dekel, on July 16, 1948, with not much resistance, Nazareth surrendered and was the surrender of Nazareth was formalized in a written agreement where the town leaders agreed to cease hostilities in return for promises from Israel officers that no harm would come to the civilians of the town. In sharp contrast to the surrounding towns, as I mentioned, the Arab inhabitants in Nazareth were therefore never forced to leave their homes. And the influx of Muslims, Arab refugees, from the surrounding villages and town 
came all the way to live in Nazareth. So the population was changed from a heavy Christian presence to having more Muslims majority. And Nazareth today is also an important regional trade center area. And tourism has become increasingly important to its economy, which also includes uh, light manufacturing, like textile and like uh, car industry. And many Nazareth residents commute to industrial jobs in Haifa or to nearby jobs in Jewish settlements. And the Christians in Nazareth are so highly educated. And even the schools in Nazareth are very considered to be one of the top schools in the country. So in Nazareth, you'll find a lot of lawyers, a lot of accountants, a lot of like educated people that went all the way and learned from universities around, especially from a Hebrew university in Haifa. So they get good education in Nazareth. But also there is another Nazareth which has started to come into scene to be built. It's called Upper Nazareth or Nazareth Elite. That was built in 1957 and it was built on the hills to the east of the city. If you look here to the left side, you're going to see a huge, huge new modern town, Upper Nazareth, and that's dedicated for the Jewish population. And also have a lot of factories there, like a lot of food processing factories, huge malls. So that's where let much more work for Christians or Muslims from Nazareth to work in uh, Upper Nazareth. And the population of the Upper Nazareth is around, is increasing, it's around 75,000 and it keeps growing. And by that time we'll be arriving to Nazareth village. And I'll tell the group to prepare themselves. They're gonna have a great tour inside Nazareth village. And we'll be around one hour so I remind the group to bring with them the Bibles, to bring with them sunglasses and some water because part of the tour will be inside the museum and another part will be outside the museum. And you're going to see a reconstruction of how Nazareth looked in the first century. And you're going to see a wine press, you're going to see an olive press, and you're going to learn about the life of the first century in Nazareth. I like to do it like this. I like to go first to the Annunciation Church to show them the area and the location of Nazareth of the first century and the town of Jesus. So we said that the whole size of the church of the Annunciation and St. Joseph Church is the size of the town of Jesus in the first century. But we can't see any archaeology because the church is built on the top of the town. So here in Nazareth village, you're going to see a replica of an example of a town from the first century that looked like Jesus' days, but in a different location. So it will make more sense to the group when they go and see Nazareth village. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and it was not much complicated because it's about the architect of the churches, but I want you to have a taste of uh, Nazareth and the churches, the main church, the Annunciation Church in Nazareth. Thank you so much.